First Peter is, is, is written to a group of people that they didn't expect what was happening them to them to happen. The people that Peter writes his letter to grew up in the, the, when they were young in the ancient world thinking we're, we're just going to live under the rule of the Roman Empire and we're going to be good citizens like everybody else. But as they came to know King Jesus, they started suffering. And so the thing that they didn't really ever expect to happen started happening. I think that 1 Peter is extremely relevant, uh, perhaps more today than it has been in quite a while. If you think about it, uh, 1 Peter is written to, to a group of people, you could almost call it pre-Christian, and when I say pre-Christian, I simply mean that Constantine had not yet made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire, which would happen a few hundred years later. So Christianity was very, very early uh, in its origins and people were being persecuted. And so one of the things that Peter says quite a bit in this letter is he addresses his audience as strangers. You don't, you don't belong to this world. So, for example, 1-1, uh, to God's elect, strangers in the world. 2-11, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world. And then one seventeen, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, uh, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. So he writes this letter to a group of people ostracized by their world, and he tells them that their identity should be uh, not as people who are super comfortable with the world, but as strangers, as the song goes. This world is not my home. That's what Peter's trying to get across to his original audience. Well, if you think about it, today we've gone from pre-Christian to what most experts say is that we are now living in a post-Christian world where Christianity is no longer the default dominant religion of the United States of America. So the relevance of 1 Peter um, is very, very high right now. I, I could spend the rest of the message talking about evidence and statistics which support this idea that our country's moving in a post-Christian direction I'll just share a few. Uh, one, two-thirds of the Christians in the world now are located outside the United States of America. Missiologists say that the United States is one of the largest mission fields in the world. Uh, Tim Wildman, who's the president of the American Family As uh, Association, he had a... Now, it's a pretty drastic quote. I, I don't necessarily know if it'll come true, but... It's interesting that he said this. He says, in the year 2060, conservative Christians will be treated as second-class citizens, much like African Americans were prior to the civil rights legislation in the 1960s. So whether or not it's that drastic, it's common knowledge today that it's a different ballgame. And churches are trying to figure out, what do, we, what do we do? Well, that's exactly why Peter wrote his letter to these Christians 2,000 years ago. What do, you, what do you do when Christianity is in the minority? And, and one key blessing that I find when reading 1 Peter is, is a pretty simple thought, is that 1 Peter tells us that God works just as well with the minority as he does the majority. You could even go back to the Old Testament and trace the history of Israel and see, yes, God can work with the majority, but you know what? God also works with the remnant. And so these are anxious times to an extent, but 1 Peter helps us learn to trust the God who has seen this kind of thing before. 
So I, I want to focus in on, on one particular part of 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter is really helpful at clarifying what the mission of God really is. Now, many Christians would say, well, the mission of God, it's, it's already clear. Of course we know what the mission of God is. It's to go and teach people about Jesus and baptize people and, and tell people the gospel so they can be forgiven of their sins and, and have eternal, eternal life. And that's, that's true. That is the mission of God. However, if you have been in conversations with uh, especially just people of different generations, when they get into conversations about the core of the mission of God, what I have found is that different generations will articulate it differently. So, for example, this, uh, just a few days ago, we had a Sunday afternoon meeting in which we pulled in uh, representatives from every generation, from teenagers all the way through their uh, 70s and up. So we had about seven or eight groups, and we for about two hours, brainstormed what is the most effective way in 2019 and 2020 to reach people in our city for the name of Jesus. Well, it was really interesting because different people answered that question differently. And what I've noticed is that these three words here represent three different ways that people describe the core of the mission of God. So, one way that some people describe the mission of God is that the core of it is justice. That what God really wants is he wants the poor to be fed, and he wants water wells to be dug in Africa, and he wants human trafficking to be stopped. And as long as we do those things, then that is accomplishing the mission of God. Some, some people would argue that the mission of God is more related to ethics, saying that if the people of God would just practice the morality of God in the way that we treat each other, in the way that we speak to each other, in our, our sexual ethic, uh, in, in the things that we watch, in the things that we listen to, if we would just practice the ethical teaching of God, then that is the core of what he really wants to happen in this world. And then still many other people would say, no, no, the core of the mission of God is conversion. It is when that individual who is lost comes to know the saving grace of Jesus, they believe in the gospel, they're baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, and that is the core of the mission of God. And so depending on which person you're talking to, different people articulate this very differently. And what's interesting is that all these groups go to the Bible to make their case. So, for example, the justice crowd will go to Matthew 25, this pretty famous story where Jesus says there are sheep and there are goats, and it's a judgment passage. So the, he says uh, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the passage is about judgment. And what's really interesting in Matthew 25 is that the main criteria for those that go uh, to eternal damnation versus those that go to eternal life is taking care of the least of these. It's taking care of the poor. It's visiting uh, the sick. It's uh, taking care of the people that are in prison. That's what the whole chapter is about. And it's somewhat unsettling that there is no mention of baptism. There is no mention of faith in Matthew 25. It's all about justice. So a lot of people would go to Matthew 25 and say, this is the mission of God. Now, that the people that believe ethics is right in the middle would go to Matthew 5, where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is 
perfect, and they would say, well, really, if we just live the teachings out on the Sermon on the Mount, which is we've got to be really holy in the way that we handle our anger, in the way that we speak, in the way that we treat our enemies, in the way that we worry or don't worry, in the way that we pray, in the way that we fast. If we just do these things, if we live out the ethical teaching of our God, then the mission of God will be accomplished. And then the people who say conversions at the center would go to Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So you find all these threads throughout the Bible. Sometimes this actually causes conflict within churches, within groups of people, within Christian friends. I'll give you a few examples of, of where I've seen tension here. So when I was in youth ministry, I would often take mission trips to Honduras, like many churches and groups of people do, and we would do all sorts of kinds of uh, projects. One of the things that we would do is we would build houses for people that didn't have houses. And so we would put walls up and, and, and paint them and, and then put the tin roof on top. And then after about a day, or it took about a day, sometimes two days, and at the very end, we would bring the family in, we would pray with the family, and, and these were really moving times when you could really see someone get the home that they had always dreamed about. Now, it was really interesting because the teenagers, when we would build a home later in the evening when we would reflect about these in our devotional times, they would say things like, I just felt like I was participating in the mission of God when I built that home for that lady. Now, here's what was interesting. We work a lot with the Baxter Institute, which is a preaching school in Honduras, and they train uh, preacher, local preachers to go out and evangelize and share the gospel. And so people from all over Central America will come to Baxter uh, to get educated on preaching. And so we stay at uh, this, we stay at Baxter, which is the school for all these uh, students. And so you, what you have at the school now is two groups. You've got teenagers from America who love building houses, and you have Bible students from all across Central America. Now, here was really interesting. As I talked to the Bible students from across Central America, here's what they said to me. They said, it's great that you're coming down here and building houses, but why aren't you guys actually opening up your Bibles and proclaiming the gospel to these people that you're building houses for? You're, you're not really living out the mission of God. Well, that's interesting that a teenager would feel like it resonated, yes, this is the mission of God, whereas the Baxter student would say, no, it's not. Well, on the flip side, one of the things that the teenagers would tell me is they would say, Phil, how, how is it possible that these students from all over Central America can come to the school and spend all day long studying their Bibles and learning how to preach, but they're not doing anything about the rampant poverty in the city? How can they call themselves disciples of Jesus when they're not actually paying attention to the poor in this city. So isn't that interesting? What, what, what is really normal to somebody is met with skepticism by somebody else. And so both groups were extremely passionate about what they were doing, and both groups would defend their position biblically, and yet there was this, there was this impasse. Like, how, how do we get on the same page uh, when it comes to the mission of God? So that would be an example of the justice piece and the conversion piece being a little bit at odds. Uh, another example of a recent time when I saw a tension between two of the ways that we, we can uh, think about the mission of God would be between ethics and conversion. 
So this was actually a pretty sad story just a few months ago. I, so I, every summer I still go down to the church camp uh, that our teenagers go to, and I help out, uh, volunteer, teach a little bit, and then come back. Well, the night I was down there was a really strange night. There was a girl there. She's 16 years old. Her mom had died a long time ago. Her dad was in prison. She had been raised by her grandparents for a few years. She'd gotten into some trouble. Her grandparents had kicked her out, and somehow she had found her way to this church camp. Well, in the middle of the week, she's feeling really sick, and so one of our counselors pulls her aside, talks to her a while. Turns out she's pregnant and doesn't know what to do about it. And one of the first things that this 16-year-old girl says is, I don't think I want to keep the baby. I think I want to, I think I want to have an abortion. And so we have a group of wise adults that are talking to her, counseling her, trying to get her into contact with the right people to deal with the situation. Well, at the exact same time, she's saying, I really like what you're talking about at this church camp. I think that I believe in Jesus and I want to get baptized. And so there was this evening where the leaders of the camp had to make a decision of which one of these do we even address right now? We have this lost person who needs to know the saving power of Jesus Christ and have her sins forgiven and be baptized. We also have a very troubled girl who has no idea what to do about this pregnancy. What do we even do? Well, depending on how you answer that question, will say a lot about how you would view the center of the, the mission of God. Some people would say, well, you, you know, the, the abortion thing is so complex. You've got to get her into counseling and get her in the right people, get her the support system she needs, and later, when she's calmed down, we can deal with faith. But other people would say, no, no, no. This girl, if, 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 if she's ready, we, we got to do this right now. So I, I bring that up just to illustrate the tension between these uh, multiple ways that we can view the mission of God. You've got justice, you've got compassion, we, we've got ethics. So just to finish that story, we, uh, we ended up sending her uh, home that weekend and we got her uh, connected with uh, adoption agencies and got her connected to, to the right people and then said that we would like to talk to her uh, about the baptism decision on an ongoing basis. But it was a hard decision. And I empathized with the... I was not the one making the decision that night, but I empathized. That's a hard, that's a hard decision to make. So all that just to say, different people have different ways of seeing what the heart of the mission of God is. And if we're not careful, that can actually cause tension within Christian families and within churches. So, 1 Peter. What in the world does this have to do with 1 Peter? I think that 1 Peter... Of all the books of the Bible, it might be the single most helpful book in clarifying how these different pieces of the mission of God fit together. So I want to give you two passages that I think are really helpful in explaining this. One would be uh, 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter says, You are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you are a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Here what Peter's doing is he is helping the church remember their primary identity. And he's actually hearkening back to uh, Exodus chapter 19, which is this great chapter where, where God declares that Israel is now a kingdom of priests. And if you think about the role of a priest, a year or two ago I, had, I did a lot of study on what priests actually did. And one, I would have not wanted to be a priest because part of their job was to actually be holy. Like they, their uh, codes for 
conduct were at a much higher standard than other people. So priests were called to be very, very righteous, very holy in the way that they acted. Another job of the priest was to run the temple. And if you remember, uh, the temple, if you, if you think back to the, that story when Jesus clears the temple and gets angry, one of the things going on in that story is that the temple was supposed to be a place for the marginalized. It was supposed to be a place where the poor and the widow and the orphan could come and find God. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had made it a den of robbers. They had made it a, a marketing scheme where they were getting rich off the poor. And that's what made Jesus so angry. But one of the roles of the priest was to run that temple and thereby mediate the presence of God to the marginalized people. So the, the priest was to be holy, the priest was to run the temple, and then the priest was to teach, teach the law. Those are three of the primary job functions of a priest. Well, Peter comes along and tells the church, you're the priesthood, and you are to mediate the presence of God to the world, and you're supposed to stand in the gap on behalf of the world and bring the world to God. That, that, that's your job. Well, if you think about it, uh, teaching the law, taking care of the marginalized via the temple, and being holy, those, those represent these three different viewpoints of the very mission of God. So one of the things that I think Peter is trying to say in this book is that the church is to embody all three very passionately as we carry out the mission of God in the world. We are to be people of justice. We are to be people of conversion, calling people that you need to make a decision about Jesus Christ. And then we are to be ethical people as well who embody the values of God in the Christian community. And all, all three of these themes are so prevalent in, in 1 Peter. So here's another uh, text that I think is even uh, probably even more clear than, than the first one. Well, let me, oh, sorry, let me back up and say this. I think this is really helpful language in describing the mission of God. I read a book by a guy named Eric Swanson several years ago, and he, he particularly... Um, talks a lot about good deeds and good news, and I've added the third, good lives. But if you think about it, these three represent three dimensions of the mission of God. So good deeds would be our acts of justice in the world, taking care of the least of these. And then good lives would be our ethical living, and then the good news is the gospel story. And if you, if you read your New Testament, what you'll find is these three, it's almost like uh, braiding someone's hair. They, they, they weave together over and over in the text. So, here's a, one way they, they go together. Good deeds and good lives create goodwill. So, when you're doing good deeds in the community, when you're taking care of the poor, when you're taking care of the widow and the orphan, when, when you're doing projects for, for the community, well, it creates goodwill. The community people want to be around churches that care for the community. That It creates a great sense of goodwill. And, and the same with good lives. When you live moral, ethical lives, you create goodwill for the people around you. And then goodwill becomes the platform on which we share good news. So what I have found is that when myself or others attempt to share good news without creating goodwill, we usually get just a goodbye. Like, no, no thanks. We'll, we'll talk to you later. And so part of the reason that good deeds and good lives are so important is that when you don't have them, then people aren't actually ready to hear the good news. So good deeds, good lives, create goodwill. Goodwill is the platform on which we share good news. Now, watch how this works out in the book of 1 Peter. Live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter's already starting to draw these themes together. Live such good lives, as in be pure, be, be humble, be honest, have integrity, have character, so that people notice. And then do good deeds. Care for each other. Take care of the least of these. Because, again, people notice that. And when people notice Christians doing these things, they praise God. I had a, a friend about two years ago. He moved away for a while, and he moved back. He's in his 60s. And I was going to have lunch with him. And so he asked me to pick the place, and I just picked a place, just a hamburger place. And on the day we were going to go, he texted me, and he said, I don't think I, I feel comfortable going there. I said, why? Like, was barbecue sauce bad? Or, you know, it's a good, good burger place. And it was really interesting, his answer. He said, well, to be honest, if I remember right, in the bathroom of that restaurant, there is a picture on the wall that's close to pornography. And I don't want to support that kind of a restaurant. And he said that, and I thought, huh, that is a fascinating thing to share with somebody. And I, and I had several thoughts go through my head. You know, one thought is, well, if you're going to try to avoid all that, you know, there's no way you could go anywhere in the world. But then the more I thought about it, I was so inspired by him saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying you need to have that exact moral ethic on, uh, on your restaurant choices, but what I am saying is that he decided he was going to stand up for something, and it was really, really inspiring. And so the fact that he had this really strong ethical value that he wouldn't even want to go into the bathroom with whatever picture was on the wall, that made me actually want to know God a little more. And I think something like that happens when we really choose to live the ethical teachings of Jesus, I really think that people start to notice. So, let me go on here. When we live good lives, and when we do good deeds... That sets up people to hear the good news. And so here's what Peter says. It's all in the same chapter, by the way. It's all chapter 2. The, the royal priesthood stuff followed by the good, needs, good news, followed by good deeds. And then you have this verse towards the end of the chapter where Peter says, Jesus bore our sins in the body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the way that Peter even sets up his letter is he tells people, I want you to do the good deeds and I want you to... Uh, to live good lives so that people can believe this message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And when this really happens, when you can put all these themes together, good news, good deeds, good lives, it, it, it makes for pretty remarkable stories. Uh, I'll share a story or two with, uh, with you and then we'll, we'll wrap up. So one story I want to share with you is, so my, probably seven years ago, my parents met a couple from China at a Thanksgiving dinner at, at my church, and they started studying the Bible with this couple. This couple, were they were atheists, but they had come to get some good food and to see what Thanksgiving was all about. Well, this Bible study lasted about three years, and this couple would go to my parents' house every Saturday, and they would read the Bible together. And uh, over those three years, this couple decided to become Christians. And so it was, it was really amazing. One day, they were baptized. And, but one thing that was kind of hard about their story is that they had a daughter... And at that time, she was 17, 18 years old. And as the parents made their journey towards Christianity, the daughter wasn't really on board. In fact, I remember talking to her at that time 
And I had asked her, what do you think about Jesus? And she had said, Jesus is a great teacher of Western civilization. That's, that's what she thought about Jesus. Well, I lost contact with this family. And about a year after the parents had been baptized, my mom told me that the daughter was going to become a Christian. And I said, Mom, how, did, how does that happen? This is an atheist. She, I remember her telling me that Jesus is just a great teacher of Western civilization. Like, how does, like, what's her story? And it was amazing what my mom said. My mom said, here's what happened. Her parents underwent such a radical transformation of character that their daughter thought, if Jesus can do that for you, I want Jesus to do that, to do that for me. Isn't that incredible? Like, they didn't even necessarily start with a Bible study with their daughter. Their character was the primary witness to Jesus. Like, that's, that's amazing. See, when, when we really believe in Jesus and let him transform us, people notice. Like, when you're really, really, when you have super high integrity and you treat people with dignity, other people actually notice that about you, and then they start to see the presence of Jesus. That is exactly what Peter is telling us to do. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're still going to glorify their Father in heaven. It's one of the greatest ways to embody the gospel is simply through your character. Another story I want to share with you. I found out about this one just a few months ago. We, we support a uh, missionary in India named, named uh, he has a funny name, Manny, and his last name is hard to say. It's Manny Pagatapali is how you say his name. Oh, that, that's the picture of the couple that uh, my parents studied with for so many years. And so this guy is, um, his name is actually Rao. So Manny works in India, and about three or four years ago, Manny was going into uh, heavily Buddhist areas uh, trying to teach people about Jesus. And he happened to become friends with this guy named Rao. Now, Rao was actually a Hindu priest, but he met Manny and they built a friendship. And after a while, Rao actually became a, a Christian. Now, uh, when you watch the news, you hear about radical uh, Muslim terrorists. There's actually a very uh, similar group of people, not Muslims, but Hindus. And so they, they're dealing with some, some uh, radical terrorists in, their, in, in this area. In fact, just a few months ago, the, this group of these radical Hindus actually terrorized this uh, Catholic school, choked nuns with rosary beads. It was this horrible story that made the news a few months ago. So that's, that's their context. So this guy, Rao, Hindu priest, meets Manny becomes a Christian. Uh, Rao actually goes to a uh, preacher school for a year or two, learns, learns more about the biblical story, and then he decides that he wants to go back to the, the temple that he used to be a Hindu priest in so that he can take care of the people that he, he used to be with and used to love. And so he actually went back to this temple and he started ministering to the poor people there. This time, not, in, not as a Hindu, but in the name of, of Jesus. This is a really big risk to his own faith, because again, this is heavily, heavily Hindu uh, country there. Well, some of these radicals found out that he was doing this, and they, they attacked him. This was about a year ago, and they actually beat him senseless. It's a miracle that he didn't die. So he was taken off to the hospital, and then 
the craziest thing happened while he's in the hospital. These poor people that he'd been loving and ministering to, they wanted to see him in the hospital. And so they, one by one, would, would come see him. And as he was sitting all banged up on the hospital bed, he started telling them about Jesus. And he started saying things like, you know, the things that are happening in my body are pale to what's going to happen to me in, in glory. Yes, I was a Hindu for a long time, but Jesus is the king, Jesus is the king, Jesus is the king. And so he started ministering to all these people on his hospital bed. And then, let's see if this will come up here. He ended up baptizing 32 people with a broken arm. Isn't that incredible? How does, he, how does that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happens. It's because one guy, he decides that he's going to be absolutely incredible at good deeds. I'm going to take care of these poor people and good lives. I'm going to be an ethical, moral person myself. And then what happens is those things create goodwill. And goodwill then becomes the platform on which we share good news. So good news, good deeds, good lives. Last thing I'll say and then then I'll be done is I think it's really important that we talk about these as a church because in my experience, there really can be generational divides on this one. And if we're divided, everybody loses. So I think it's really, really important that whatever one of these three angles you resonate the most with, acknowledge that that's that's the one that you feel the most passionate about. But it's really important when someone might resonate with one of the different ones that you acknowledge that, hey, I, I can see the mission of God in your passion as well. Because again... If we're, not, if we're not on the same page here, it, it's not good for the church and it's not good for the world. So my encouragement to you is to live really good lives and to spend, spend your time performing a lot of good deeds because that's going to create goodwill in the community. And then goodwill becomes the platform on which you and this wonderful body of Christ can share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for letting us... Um, Think and talk about your word tonight. We're thankful for the book of 1 Peter, uh, written to aliens and strangers in this world. I pray that you will help us uh, to remember that we are aliens and strangers in this world, and that this is not our home. And our home is in heaven with you someday, Father. Father, make us the kind of Christians uh, who carry out your good news to the world. Help us to model that in our ethics and the way we live our lives. Give us the courage and the compassion to perform good deeds to the people that you love. Father, may the name of Jesus be made great in this community and this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.